Well, good morning. I've never seen it rain like this here before. Have you guys? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Good. Okay. Worse than this? Okay. Good. Oh yeah. Okay. Somebody tell me something about. Uh, and I'm gonna do it kind of orderly. Okay. I'm gonna tell me something about what we talked about yesterday. Just stand, and I'm gonna bring you the microphone. Okay. Because I want to pick up a little bit on where we left off yesterday. So, somebody stand. Jesus is a real physical man seated on a real physical throne. Hey, man, anything else? Oh, okay. <laughs> so, historically, um, two kingdoms would come together through marriage, and that blew my mind. Okay, another one back here. You guys want to help me with this mic? We are seated in heavenly places, so live like it. Anyone else? Okay, right here. Can you stand? I know you're in front, but I got to. The kingdom of heaven should be way more realistic to us than the kingdom on earth that we can see. Amen. Amen. Another one back here. Good. Okay. What God wanted in the beginning, he's going to have at the end. Amen, 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 amen. Okay, one more, one more. Over here on this side of the room, you got to engage a little. Okay, right here. Sorry. I just love the uh, imagery of like in Narnia when they're in, in Narnia and they're kings and queens and they know it. And then they come back into the real world. And it's just like, amazing. It's just like it kind of paints such a clear picture for me. I love that. All right, cool. Uh, I just love, like, how you went from truth to action. So, like, if my actions aren't glorifying God, then what am I not believing about God? I love it. Okay, man, I'm, I, I'm just, I'm like, I, it's hard for me to draw lines. Okay, here we go. Yeah, so, if we're from a heavenly kingdom, then we'll look foolish to this kingdom in the world. Woo! Okay, good. Okay, that's perfect. I want to pick up on a couple of the things that we talked about yesterday, specifically related to the kingdom of heaven. Oh, wait. No, okay. All right, so here we are. On earth as in heaven reality. We talked about four things that were descriptive of heaven. What was it? Four things. One, worship. Intercession. Wait, okay, so pause for a second. Intercession. Uh, let's go worship. Why? How do we know worship? Throne room. Okay, throne room. So we know places like Revelation 4, 5, places like Isaiah 6. We get this, people are taken up into a throne room, and they see this worship that never stops. They never stop crying out, holy, holy, holy. Okay, worship. Uh, intercession. How do we know this? Jesus is an intercessor. Okay, where's the passage? Hebrews 7.25, very good. Jesus, see, that's super good. Seated at the right hand of the Father is always an intercessor. Okay, so, so Jesus in heaven is an intercessor. What was he when he walked on the earth? An intercessor, okay, because his intercession took on flesh, right? Okay, so three, what was three and four? Good, oh, wow. Okay, you guys are good. Unity. What passage were we in for unity? John 17. Okay, good. And love. 
What passage were we in for love? John 17. Okay, so good. Unity. Father, I desire that they would be one like we are one. All right? So, so, so Jesus prays, God, I want these, these believers, these saints that you've given to me, I want them to be one like you are one. And we talked about that passage that was, that was uh, that how good and how pleasant it is when brethren dwell together in unity because there is a what? Commanded blessing, okay? Psalm 133, all right? Psalm 133, there's a commanded blessing. We talked about even just some of the implications. Uh, well, I'm going to pause for a second. Okay, love. John 17. What did Jesus pray in John 17 that said, I'm, I'm, this, is, this is a kingdom of love? Okay, good. The same love that you have. So he says, Father, the same, I want them to know the same love that you have for me. I want them to know that same love. All right, that's crazy, all right? The same love that the Father has for the Son is the same love that the Father has for you. All right, so we begin to believe some of these realities of heaven, and it transforms our truth, which changes something on the inside of us. So we're not just trying to act differently. Something on the inside of us changes, and we naturally act differently, okay, is the point. Now, this right here, we talked about Jesus in a manger. We talked about the fact that he was not just kind of sweet little baby Jesus, meek and mild. But what was God, what was Jesus, what was his mandate? What was he thinking lying in that manger? Global takeover, global dominance, takeover. Okay, he was not just like, he, often we think, oh man, like Jesus is so humble. He came as a baby and he like barely... No one really knew him. No one really understood him. He died on the cross. That's really what his kingdom is like. And it is. It is. We have to understand that that is part of his kingdom. It's like his kingdom is like a mustard seed. It comes so little. But at the end of the day, Jesus said, that mustard seed is going to be the biggest of all. It's going to be the greatest of all. Okay, so understanding that's the kingdom. What looks foolish today is one day going to seem the most wise. So Jesus, yes, coming as a baby, coming in humility, coming to die, all right? So it looks weak, it looks foolish, but don't be deceived, all right? Don't be deceived by what you can see with your eyes because Jesus, sitting in that manger, was thinking, I am going to take over all the kingdoms of the world, all right? I'm going to rule every nation. Every dream in our heart that we have for our nation is going to come true. It's going to come true a little bit, before Jesus returns, it's going, to be, it's going to come true in fullness when he returns. All right, so, so we begin to see that when I give myself to the wisdom, and I like to call this the government of God, meaning it's like the government of a nation impacts the life of the people in that nation, right? So the government of the United States or the government of South Africa Mm -hmm. or the government of uh, North Korea impacts the life of the people in that nation, right? Isn't that true? So what the government does, the way that the government functions, it, it determines what life is like for people in that kingdom. So I like to think of this as the government of God. Like in the government of God, the place where his throne 
dwells, the place where the king reigns, it looks like this. It doesn't look like our systems of government where it's we're either voting or or it's communist or it's socialist or or it's uh, or it's a a, a tyrannical uh, dictator. It doesn't look like those kinds of things. It's a perfect king who sits on the throne who's going to change everything. And that government functions with worship, intercession, unity, and love. All right? So how does that determine, for example, the way I live on outreach? What, what kind of decisions do I make about what I do with my life? On, I'm just going to go with that little block of time called outreach. What is it? What did it? What does it shift about the way I live life on outreach? Someone answer the question. How you spend your time? Okay, meaning. Okay, so I'm going to understand that probably one of the most powerful things I can do is actually pray. All right, I know that when you guys go on outreach, you spend a, a good number of hours in the place of prayer and worship. Why? Just because it's kind of feel good and it takes up time? No, it's the government of God and it's powerful. And when you go in and you step foot on that nation, you bring the kingdom in your worship and intercession. All right, we're not just filling time. You have to understand that. You have to understand that it's more than just, hey, this is fire and fragrance and we kind of do this worship and prayer thing. No, this is fire and fragrance and we do this worship and prayer thing because it's rooted in the government of God. All right, so you have to understand, so when Jesus prayed, for example, in Matthew 6, and he said, he said, his desire, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, let your kingdom come, let your will be done on the earth as it is in heaven. Okay, we pray that prayer. Often when we pray that prayer, we're thinking about the outcome of what happens in heaven. So, for example, we're thinking we want it to be on the earth as it is in heaven. We want no more sickness, no more disease, no more dying, no more human trafficking, no more, uh, no more poverty, uh, no, more, uh, no more anything on the earth that is contrary to the kingdom of God. But what we have to understand, the way that we get that is to agree with the government of God. So when we pray, I want it to be on the earth as it is in heaven, that means I want the government of the earth to shift so that we get the, the outcome of that government. So I get the benefits of the government of God if I say yes to these things. Things begin to shift on earth as it is in heaven if I say yes to the wisdom of God in his government. So things shift when I say in heaven, there's a government of worship that never stops. I'm going to be a worshiper. In, in heaven, there's a government of intercession. So Jesus always makes intercession in a place where worship never stops. That's his government. If you went to the, if, if you went to the, the, the capital building of heaven, there would be worship that never stops. There would be intercession that never stops. That's what they do. There would be perfect unity, and there would be perfect love. So today, I want to talk a little bit about why. I want us to understand that when we go on outreach and we give ourselves to worship and intercession, and primarily I'm actually going to talk about singing today as a part of our worship, okay? Now, some of you are like, that's amazing. I want you to talk about that. And others of you are like, oh, man, like, I'm, I'm not really into that singing thing. Okay, so it's okay. I, I think this is going to be for everyone. But understanding, I, first of all, I want you to know that worship, of course, is much broader than just our singing. 
Okay, so it's broader. It's our whole life. It's, it's Romans 12. I offer up my life as a sacrifice of worship. It's everything I do and everything I say. My intercession takes on flesh. I'm, I live a life of worship. But biblically, we have to understand the place that singing has and the power that singing has in our own lives and even in the proclamation of the gospel. So, it was six years ago. I was, uh, I was, uh, I was in China, and I was in a city of 22 million people for the first time. I was, I'd never been to this city before. A friend of a friend had given me a contact. I was wanting to take about 15 people over to China, and we were gonna we were gonna spend two weeks just in strengthening the church and uh, giving ourselves to prayer and worship. Just basically, our goal was to bring the government of God to China and shift things in partnership with the local church. So I was connecting with this local pastor. Thank you. You're amazing, everybody. Yes. Hospitality is such an amazing thing, and you guys are the best at it, all right? So I'm in China. I'm in this city of 22 million people, and you have to understand, like, I'm from this tiny little town uh, in, the, in the wheat fields of Canada, and there's about 1,000 people in the town. So, I mean, cities are, like, like, overwhelming to me sometimes. So now I'm in a city of 22 million people in, in, in China, and I've never been there before in my life. And I have this contact on my phone that I'm supposed to meet with, and I'm arriving by train, and I get off the train, and as I get off the train, I get a text from my contact that says, I can't meet you anymore. And I'm like, oh my gosh, what do I do now? I'm in this city. Now he follows uh, up with another text immediately, and he says, I'm sorry I can't meet with you, but I've got a friend who's a pastor of an underground church, and he'd love to meet with you. So he gives me the address. I make my way to this address in the city of, uh, uh, of 22 million people. On the sixth floor of this building, there's an underground pastor that has uh, what looks like a little cell phone business. I mean, literally, his office is half the size of this platform. And he's got a little, uh, he's got a little glass encased stand with literally probably got five cell phones in it, which is his cover, all right? So he is really a cell phone salesman, but he's really a pastor. So this is his office, and I'm meeting with him there, and we just begin to talk about what his life is like, his family, his kids, uh, the church, what's going on, and I begin to share with him the vision of night and day worship and prayer, the government of God. We want to come. We want to strengthen. Uh, we want to. We want to partner with the church in China. And I can just see his eyes begin to light up. It's just like, you know, I mean, English is not clearly his first language, but he's pr- he's he's pretty fluent. And 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 so I see his eyes begin to light up as I talk about bringing singers, musicians, intercessors. We're going to worship. We want to we want to bring the kingdom of heaven here now. And I see his eyes light up and he takes me. He says, he says, we have more office space. So he takes me across the hallway to probably a room that is three times the size of this platform. And I walk into this room And as I walk into the room, I see that over in the corner, there's a little platform. I see on the little platform, there's a keyboard, there's a guitar, there's a screen with a projector, there's a djembe, little drum, and then there's little carpets on the floor that say Leviticus 6.13. The fire on the altar will never go out. 
And I realized in that moment that I have stumbled into a prayer room in the city, in a city of 22 million people in the middle of China, a nation where it's actually kind of difficult to do that. It's kind of difficult to have a prayer room in the middle of China. And the Holy Spirit thunders in my soul in that moment and just says, if I can do it here, I can do it anywhere. And I will. And something changed in me in that moment. I would, I would, talk, I would, I would say my worldview began to grow into deeper conviction. My truth, my worldview began to grow into deeper conviction that kind of looked like David in Psalm 132. I will not give rest to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until there's a resting place for you, God, in every tribe, in every tongue, in every nation, till you have a people who love you with all their heart, soul, and might. What does a resting place mean? It means God has a people who are saved. It means they've been transferred from one kingdom to another. They're following the great commandment to love him with all their heart, soul, and might. And it is a place where God dwells on the earth, where he has what he wanted at the beginning, a people from every tribe and tongue who would love him with all their heart, soul, and might. That's a resting place. And that conviction began to grow in me that God's going to do it everywhere. Remember yesterday we talked about the fact that in 1985, nobody really even knew what a house of prayer was. And today we're, we're, we're living in an hour where there is a hundred, there are thousands, there are thousands of prayer rooms all over the earth, not founded by one ministry, not led by one organization, but prim primarily led by the Holy Spirit. And so again, we ask ourselves, why? Why in a city of 22 million people is there this prayer room for singers and musicians and they literally have someone there 24 hours a day, seven days a week? Why? You have to ask yourself, let's move back to the place of understanding truth that's going to cause us to understand what God's doing on the earth right now. And this reality here, that this is the kingdom of God, he wants it to be on the earth. Right now, there are two separate kingdoms. Satan rules the kingdoms of this world. God rules the universe, the entire universe. He, he rules the kingdom of heaven. And one day, those two kingdoms are going to be one. Ephesians 1, here's the mystery of God's will. Here's the mystery of God's will. How do I understand my life in this world? I understand the mystery of God's will is to bring two kingdoms together. That's his goal. And so my life, the will of God for my life, has to fit into that big picture will of God. All right? I just understand this is, this is your will. I'm going to give my life to partner with you to bring the kingdom to earth because that's what you want. Now and when you come again. So the question I want to ask is why singing? Why worship? Why prayer? And again, I'm primarily going to talk about singing, but they all kind of bleed together. Singing, worship, prayer. I just believe that's like God doesn't see like big lines between singing, worship, and prayer. It's all kind of one reality in God's heart. All right, so understand that even as I'm talking about it. As a pastor, I really love, I lived in Minneapolis for eight years. Yeah! All right, all the Minnesotans, love it. I lived in Minneapolis for eight years, and I would go every Wednesday night. I wasn't at his church, but... I was at another church as a worship leader, but uh, John Piper is a pastor at a church. Yeah, I love him. Um, I would go every Wednesday night. He would teach, and he would be teaching through what he was writing his books about. 
right? So I could just go, and I would go to the church, and he would just talk about what he was writing his books about. I'm like, this is crazy. I love that I get to do this. So John Piper, he says this uh, in one of his messages a couple of years ago. He said, something unusual is happening today. The connection between this singing awakening around the world and missions is amazing. To my knowledge, there never has been music and singing at the forefront of missions like there is today. Singing to the Lord of the nations is like the point of the spear among the nations today. God is doing something bigger than we think, bigger than one church, bigger than one ethnic group, bigger than one region of the world, bigger than one nation. The global church is singing, singing to the Lord, singing new songs, and singing about the lordship of God over the nations. And then he goes on to say, don't, don't miss out. Don't miss out on the global event of the ages where God, by his Holy Spirit, is stirring the church into a place of worship and prayer like never before. Like we talked about yesterday, there's always been a witness on the earth. There's been a people who've given themselves to endless prayer and worship. In like little spots that we've never heard about before, possibly. But today we live in an hour where it's highlighted everywhere. There's not a nation on the earth where there's not a people thinking or talking about night and day worship and prayer. So, again, I want to ask the question, why? And for those of you who maybe are the non-singer reality, you're like, man, I'm not, I am, do not even think about putting me on that microphone I will not sing, and I am going to do that before we're done this week. We're all going to get a little, not all, probably, but we're all going to get an opportunity to sing. I want to convince you, um, there's a book called Rediscovering Worship, The Missing Jewel. It is, here's, a, here's a little snippet from it. When a non-singer becomes a Christian, he or she becomes a singer. Not all are blessed with finely tuned ear and a well-modulated voice, so the sound may not be superb. It may even be out of tune and off key. But remember, worship is a state of heart. Musical sound is a state of art. Don't confuse them. All right, don't confuse them. Worship or singing is a state of the heart. Okay, it's at the end of the day, God does not care what your voice sounds like. That's not his first concern. All right, it's not. And we're going to look today at what the Bible talks about singing and why. It doesn't matter who you are and how gifted you are. We should all be singing in this hour. And my goal is for you to understand what you're seeing on the earth right now and why every week you're going to give yourselves to 10 hours of prayer and worship. Why? And understand the power of it so you can do it with all of your strength. Not like it's kind of showing up because it's in my schedule. It's what I got to do. So, Why? Have you ever asked yourself, I mean, why, we, why when the church gathers, do they sing? Have you, ever, have you ever asked yourself that question? I mean, is it just like we picked it up somewhere historically and, and, and we don't know why we're doing it anymore? Why does the church sing? Do you know we're the only religion on the earth that sings like we do? We're the only religion on the earth that, like, gathers every weekend and spends whether it's 15 minutes, 30 minutes, one hour in the place of singing songs to God. Why is that? We, we gather in stadiums. When we gather for the send, uh, I mean, pri primarily there's going to be this outpouring of prayer and worship. Why? Why are we going to gather 60,000 people into a stadium for worship, for singing? 
I want us to understand it just a little bit more deeply. So I want to begin by telling you that I believe that what we're seeing right now is a promise from God. It's not, it's not an accident. It's not a trend in the body of Christ. It's not like fire and fragrance has picked up on a trend and it's cool right now, but 10 years from now it's not going to be cool and something else will be cool. This is not a trend, all right? Because if I give myself to a trend, I can give myself to it with a little bit of energy. But if I give myself to something that God's been thinking about for thousands of years, I can give my whole life to it. I can waste my life on it and not, and not feel ruined at the end of it. So it's a promise from God. So do this. Isaiah 55. Again, we're going to be using our Bibles a lot today. So Isaiah 55. Look in your Bibles, on your phones, pads, whatever you got. Tablets. Isaiah 55, verse 12 and 13. I believe Isaiah was seeing something about the day that you live in. Isaiah 55, verse 12 and 13. You got it? Some of you got it? Okay. If you don't have anything to see it with, please look on with your neighbor. It's just important you see it. It's important for you that you're not just hearing words out of my mouth. There's a difference between the words that I say and the words that God says. Okay, they're like totally different. So I need you to see that these are words from God. So Isaiah 55, verse 12 and 13. You shall go out with joy and be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briars shall come up the myrtle. Okay, so one of the questions we ask when we read a passage like this, Isaiah 55, verse 12 and 13, is like, what's happening? Like, where are we in the context of human history? I want to understand what's happening. I want to understand what Isaiah's thinking. I want to understand what God's thinking. So Isaiah talks about a time on the earth when people will go out with joy and be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills will break forth into uh-huh, and all the trees of the field will, uh-huh. And then what happens? What, what does he say? What happens immediately after? Okay, there's a, there, he talks about a thorn or a briar is going to be changed into something else. Okay, so instead of the thorn will come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. All right, so when did thorns come on the earth? Aha, over here at the fall. Okay, good. So we're over here at the fall. Thorns came into the earth. When do thorns leave the earth? When Jesus comes. Okay, when Jesus comes, the curse is removed. All right, so the curse that came onto the earth in Genesis 3 is removed over here somewhere in the book of Revelation when Jesus comes. So we know that what Isaiah is talking about in Isaiah 55 is a moment on the earth when Jesus comes. So, and then it, it so, so now we've got the context for those verses. He's talking about a time on the earth when the curse is removed. What's happening when the curse is removed? Earlier in the verse. You shall go out with... Joy, okay, that's us, okay? He's, it's, you, you shall go out with joy. You shall be led forth with peace. That's us. The mountains and the hills will break forth into, 
Mm-hmm. The trees of the field will, aha, uh-huh, will clap their hands. Okay, so uh, often, again, we read these passages and we're like, it's just, we just immediately go symbolism. We immediately go, that's, he's just making an illustration, of course. But, but here's, I, I, I don't want to make a major theological point about this, but my goal when I, when I do something like what I'm about to do is to poke you a little bit to, to, to make you think outside of the box. That's what we talked about. Like, God, help us think outside of the box that the enemy has actually caused us to believe that Christianity is this tiny little box that's so restrictive and lacks creativity and lacks adventure and lacks excitement and lacks all of those things. All right, so, so we read the Bible through this lens that is like, I just got to be a better person and hope I make it till Jesus returns, rather than looking at passages with the truth, the truth of what God meant for us to see. So I want to poke us a little bit, and I do this to myself. I poke myself a little bit to go, I want to think outside of that box. Because the Bible tells me that Jesus, his kingdom, is more fascinating than anything this world has to offer. Now, the world offers some pretty fascinating things. The world offers some pretty adventurous things. The world offers many things that actually are enjoyable for a period of time. Some are sinful, some are not. But we have to understand that they're limited in how long they're going to be enjoyable for us. Right? The pleasures of the kingdom of God are greater than and are going to be enjoyable forever. So whenever I give myself to the pleasures of the kingdom of God, I know that I'm giving myself to something that's going to be enjoyable forever. Okay? So I, I want to, because the truth is, here's the deal. Like I, I fight this fight just like you do. It, the fight doesn't go away as you get older, just so you know. Like, one of the reasons, like, I'm clinging to the word of God and the truth of the pleasure of the word of God is because I need it every day just to survive. Like, I need it every day to not walk in the ways of this kingdom. I cling to it. I'm weak, just like you are. I'm I'm really, I am the weakest person I know. Like, I know a lot of really weak people, but I'm like, blah. Like, I struggle. Right, so this is not like lofty spirituality. This is a desperate person longing to see that the kingdom of God is more real than the kingdom of this world. So that I can shift the way I live. I can change my action. All right, so don't look at this as like, and that is like, that's too weird. All right, because I'm desperate just like you are. I'm sinful just like you are. And I'm clinging to believe promises in the word of God that are true for us. So I'm looking at a passage like Isaiah 55, and I go, the trees of the field are going to clap their hands and all the, and I'm like, what does that really look like? I, I think about it, well, of course that symbolism, of course the trees aren't really going to clap their hands. But then I go, I mean, have you seen creation? I, I mean, all, we talked about this yesterday, but all that science fumbles to explain, even today, is all creation under the curse, like, the, the unbelievable realities of nature. Blake, where did we go yesterday? What, P.O. Bay? Yeah. The Black Sands Beach. Anybody been there? Okay, you should go there. It's pretty amazing. We got soaking wet because it poured down rain. Uh, but it was just remarkable. I mean, you just stand there and you're like, this is, I'm looking at one tiny little piece of the planet. And this creation is unbelievable. It blows my mind. I just can't even imagine it. I just can't imagine the God who created all of this. And friends, that creation, 
the creation that we see, just when we look out, I mean, when, you, when you're here and you're perched on, on this base and you look out over the water, the creation that we see every day with our eyes that we go on vacation to be awed by. We go on vacation to places where we go, this is unbelievable. That, the Bible says, is under the curse. The creation that we see today is under the curse, friends. What does it look like when creation is no longer under the curse? What does it look like? Like, I got to get out of my mindset that Jesus comes back and everything's just like, who knows what? Like, no, the Bible actually tells us things about it. So I go, man, if creation today looks like this, what is it going to look like when Jesus returns? And I want to live for that day, and I want my heart and my mind to be fascinated by it. Because maybe C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia wasn't so off when the trees actually spoke. Like maybe the mountains and the hills really, really will break forth into singing. Like maybe there's more going on than we think is going on. Friends, I mean, we know, for example, so, 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 so just a couple, like, so we know that in, in the garden, when the snake spoke to Adam and Eve, that we, they, they were not freaked out by it. What if animals actually spoke before the curse? Now, now another thing, like, so, so I'm, I'm just, I'm poking you a little bit, that's all. So don't write down, this guy thinks that animals speak. Could we not have him come back next year? Okay, so don't, don't write that down. I'm poking you right now, okay? So, or... There was that, that story of Balaam's donkey in the Old Testament, all right? The, when, when, they, when, when the donkey starts to speak, here's what the Bible says, that God looses the tongue of the donkey so that he speaks. What if the tongues were tied of the animals at the curse? And God just for a moment loosed the tongue of the donkey to talk. Now, all I'm doing, again, I'm like, I, go, I realize I've got two little tiny passages, and I'm not trying to write a book and create a big theological point. I'm really trying to poke us to go, whatever it looks like, I'm telling you, I don't, it, me thinking the mountains are going to sing is actually little compared to what it's actually going to be like, look like. That, that's all I know. The Bible says I, it's beyond what I could ask or even imagine. So I begin to think about the time on the earth when Jesus returns and he says there's going to be singing. And I believe if you look at the Old Testament, if you look at the Bible in general, it actually prophesies a time on the earth where from the ends of the earth there will be songs. I believe that Isaiah saw a glimpse of what we're living in right now. I believe the time we live in right now was prophesied by Isaiah thousands of years ago. He spoke about this day, the day in which you live, which actually determines like, wow, if Isaiah prophesied about this, I should be aware of that, right? I want to be aware of it because I want to give myself to it. Friends, creation is, creation is going to be more than we can ask or imagine in the age to come. Do you know that? Jewish tradition tells us that creation was actually sung into being. And actually, Job 38 seems to uh, kind of go, yeah, that's true. Look at Job 38 for a moment. Look at Job 38. Job 38, verse 4. 
and verse 7. I'm going to read a little bit of verse 4 and verse 7 just to give you the context of what's taking place. Job 38. Job 38, verse 4 and verse 7. Okay? This is what, this is, so God is responding. Of course, we know Job is stricken with, like, horrible things. His friends come to basically accuse him. It's not bad enough that you're stricken. Now your friends come to accuse you. All right? And then God comes to kind of, like, bring some, some sense to the whole thing. And he, and he asks this question. He says, God says, so this is God in Job 38. He says, where were you when I laid the foundations, the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. And he gets a couple more lines, and then it says, when the morning stars. Do you have understanding of that day when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Job 38. God's talking about the day of creation when the morning stars sang, I believe, friends, I, 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 just, I just believe that whatever it's going to look like is going to be more than I can imagine. I don't have to try to make it sound less than like, hey, I'm trying to be biblically correct. So, so I'm just going to make it sound as little as possible because I'm afraid to move outside of theological boundaries. Okay, no, I, be- I believe that w- we're going to base all of our theological principles on what we see in the word. And then we're going to let our hearts be fascinated by ideas like morning stars singing together. And mountains singing and trees of the field clapping their hands. And not just allowing a dullness to come over us when we look at the word of God. Like, do you know that? Do you know that I believe that Satan attacks, one of his primary attacks against us is when we go to read the word of God. Like there is a dullness that comes over us. There's a man. We can be. We can watch. We can do a Netflix binge for hours. But ask somebody to read the Bible for thirty minutes, and it's like, man, I'm falling asleep. You know, it's just like there's a dullness that comes over us, and it is the enemy of our souls that brings that dullness to the Word of God. We just have to be careful that we don't say yes to it when we read the Bible. Couple more passages. I'm gonna. You can jot these down. I'm gonna read them quickly so you can see Isaiah 42, verse 10 through 12. Isaiah 42 is this proclamation of who God is. Then in verse 10 to 12, there's this command. There's this sing to the Lord a new song. His praise from the ends of the earth. You who go down to the seas and all that fill it, the coastlands and their inhabitants. Let the desert. And its cities lift up their voices, the villages that Kadar inhabits. Let the inhabitants of Selah sing for joy. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. So Isaiah is, is giving a command from God and a time on the earth when there is singing everywhere. In every part of the earth, there is singing. And the response of God, if you keep going in verse 13, it's like... What happens? Somebody look at verse 13. Tell me what God does. Raise your hand. I'm going to bring you the microphone. Verse 13, there's a little picture. So there's songs everywhere. What does God do in in verse 13? Yes. It says the Lord will march out like a champion. So the Lord will march out like a champion. It talks about the zeal of God coming on the earth. Okay, it, it actually sounds a little bit like the Old Testament. You know the Old Testament when God would kind of put the singers and musicians out ahead? 
And they had this battle that seemed completely impossible. And then these guys would blow trumpets and they would shout and sing and boom, God would come and release his vengeance against the Assyrian army. And the people of Israel wouldn't even have to raise their hands. That's what I think is happening here in Isaiah 42. I think in Isaiah 42, there's a time on the earth where that picture in the Old Testament of armies that have singers and musicians ahead of the actual warriors, or they are warriors, all right, so, and then God comes and fights for them is a global picture of what's going to happen before he returns, where the church is going to be singing and God is going to come in his power to make all of the wrong things right. We have to understand, like, we need to be a people who love the judgments of God. So, so I just know, like, I remember hearing people pray, like, God, we ask for your judgment. And I'd be like, like no, like, I know how sinful I am. I need the mercy of God. You know, like, I don't want your judgment right now. That terrifies me. All right, but we have to understand, we want to be a people who, when we see God moving in fierce power, we have to understand the judgments of God are beautiful. Because here's what the judgments of God are. He comes to make all the wrong things right. He comes in his perfect love. And he makes all the wrong things right. So we can, we can boldly ask God for his judgments in my life right now. Because I know that he's going to come and make all of the wrong things right. Let's keep going. Isaiah 35. Isaiah 35 says this. And the ransomed of the Lord, verse 10. Just jot it down. Isaiah 35, verse 10. You can look at it later in case you don't believe me. The ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Okay, who are the ransomed of the Lord? Us. Yeah, it's not super complicated. The ransomed of the Lord are us. Okay, the ransomed of the Lord shall return to Zion singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. What, what does that sound like? What, when, is, when does that take place? Gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. That, that sounds a little bit of like Jesus coming back, okay? Right? So that time when the redeemed come to Zion, they're going to come with a song. They're going to come singing, all right? Keep going. Isaiah 24. Isaiah 24 is this picture of a time of unparalleled uh, judgment of God on the earth. There's like where God comes in the greatest judgment on the earth, Isaiah 24. Then in verse 15 and 16, it says this. It says, they lift up their voice and they sing for joy. So, so basically what Isaiah says is when it's going to be like that on the earth, then they will lift up their voice and sing for joy. Over the majesty of the Lord, they shall shout from the west. Therefore, give glory to the Lord in the coastlands of the sea. Give glory to the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. For from the ends of the earth, we hear songs. Glory to the righteous one. I believe we live in that hour right now where we're beginning to hear songs everywhere. More than ever before. So I'm going, whoa. <laughs> This is like, I, I, can, I, I, can, I can kind of see that. I, I can kind of see that Isaiah is talking about a time on the earth where everywhere there's going to be songs and the church is going to be singing. The, and we get to be a part of that. One more, one more passage. Isaiah 52, verse 8. Just jot it down. Maybe you've heard about Isaiah 62. Isaiah 62 talks about, there's a prophecy that says that uh, I will, I'm going to set watchmen on the wall. 
They're not going to give me rest. This is God talking. They're not going to give me rest day or night until Jerusalem is a praise in the earth. When is Jerusalem a praise in the earth? When Jesus comes back, when heaven and earth become one, okay? What happens is Jerusalem is the capital of the earth, all right? So when Jesus comes back, Jerusalem is the capital. There is a global capital, all right? Jerusalem will be a praise of the earth at that point in time. And God says, I'm going to set watchmen on the wall, watchmen, intercessors, okay, who do not give me any rest. They're going to cry out day and night, that's what Isaiah 62 says, until Jerusalem is a praise, until I come and make Jerusalem the capital of the whole world. And it is on the earth like it is in heaven. Okay, that's, that's, what, that's what he's saying right there. And he's, Isaiah 52, verse 8. I, I was talking about Isaiah 62 to give the context of Isaiah 52. Isaiah 52 says this. It says, the voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. So the watchmen, Isaiah 62, not going to give rest day or night. They lift up their voice to sing. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord. Do you see this connection between the, ter- the return of the Lord and a singing people? In the book of Isaiah. Okay, so, so why, like why is the YOM Kona prayer room pressing towards 24 hours a day, seven days a week? Worship and intercession that never stops. Because God prophesied it, that's why. Because Isaiah prophesied about it thousands of years ago that there would be a people who would cry out to God day and night and there would be songs from the ends of the earth. What you're watching unfold right now is prophecy unfolding before your very eyes. That's a remarkable time to live in. So like when I go to the prayer room, then I understand that I'm not just doing the program of YWAM Kona or the program of Fire and Fragrance. I'm stepping into something that God prophesied about thousands of years ago. And so I give myself to it with all my heart. I'm not just a bystander. I'm not just kind of trying to fill time. I'm like, oh, God really cares about this. He prophesied about this thousands of years ago. And I'm just going to say yes. I'm just going to say yes to it, okay? So, let's keep going. So, again, I ask the question, why singing? Why? Why singing? Why worship? Okay, foundationally, I'm going to say worship and intercession is multiplying on the earth right now because it is the government of God. We've been praying, let your kingdom come, let your will be done since Jesus walked the earth. God is beginning to answer that prayer that heaven would come to earth as the church enters into deeper worship, intercession, and ultimately, of course, unity and love. God is answering our prayer right now. And it's remarkable. So I'm going to give us some just quick points on why singing, why worship, why prayer, okay? So number one, number one reason why singing. To sing is to be like God. All right, so now, now I have to be careful. So what I, what I mean is to sing is not to be God. Okay, so that's not what I'm saying. I'm, sing, I'm saying to sing is to be like God in his nature and his character. All right, so I'm going to show you in the Bible that God sings. It's important for us to understand that. So beginning with the Gospels, there's two places. Just jot them down. Matthew 26, verse 30. Matthew 26, verse 30. And Mark 14, verse 26. In these two passages... It's the, it's the account of the, um, the Last Supper. So Jesus is about to go to the cross. He's meeting with his disciples in the upper room. 
And the Bible tells us that they, held, they had the Passover feast together, right? They broke bread. They drank uh, a, a cup of wine. And, and God says, uh, um, in that context, he goes, this is my body that's broken for you. So he begins to unfold the meaning of the Passover. This is my body that's broken for you. This is my blood that's shed for you. All right. Now, now in the end of that story, the Bible tells us or the, the gospel writers tell us that, that they sang a hymn together or they sang a song together. So I just know, like right there in the passage, it tells me that Jesus sang. All right. But. Jewish tradition, and even now, when the Passover feast happens, and in the celebration of the Passover, most often that, that ceremony, that, that, that remembrance is actually sung. Like, like, they would often sing through Psalm 114, Psalm 115, 116, 117. Traditionally, this is what happens during the Passover, is someone would, there would be like a leader, and they would sing, and then the room would sing back to them as they're taking the Passover. So traditionally, as we look at this passage, we could look at it and go, Jesus was leading them in the Passover. He sang, the disciples sang back. They sang through the entire thing. That's what actual Jewish tradition would tell us. So I can, with all confidence, tell you that Jesus sang because the Bible tells me that he sang, but I think it's even more than we think it is. So the Gospels. Then Hebrews 2, verse 12. Hebrews 2, verse 12 says this. Hebrews 2, verse 12 is uh, quoting Psalm, uh, he's quoting Psalm 22, verse 22. Hebrews 2, verse 12. There's two times in the Bible. The writer to the Hebrews is quoting Psalms 22, verse 22, and it says this. This is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. He is Jesus, okay? So in that context, this is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. So he, in this verse, is referring to Jesus, all right? So what, what the writer to the Hebrews is saying is Jesus is not ashamed to call you his brother or his sister, so much so that he will tell of your name in the congregation, meaning he's not, Jesus is not just waiting for us to sing to him. He's not just waiting for us to sing to him. What happens is he actually identifies with us as our brother. He looks at us like in the eye, and he's not just waiting for us to sing to him. He, actually comes into the congregation and joins us in our song and sings with us. Like, I will tell of your name in the congregation, I will sing. All right, that's what's happening. Psalm 22, Hebrews 2. We see Jesus singing with us. I love this picture. I love to think about when we gather in worship, Jesus sings with us. Jesus, the Son of God, sings with us. It's powerful. It's powerful to think of Jesus not just waiting for us to sing to him, but actually singing with us. Zephaniah 3.17, jot it down. Zephaniah, yeah, you guys are good. Zephaniah 3.17 is actually a, it's a prophetic picture of the day that we are standing around that throne. From every tribe, every tongue, and every nation, we're standing around that throne we're longing for the day because the Bible tells us that we're going to sing a new song. That day, every tribe, every tongue, every nation, we're around that throne. We're worshiping God. But it's not just us. It's, it's not just we who are singing in that context. Zephaniah 3.17 says this. 
The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save you. All right, so God is with us. We're with him. He will rejoice over you with gladness, and he will quiet you with his love, and he will exult over you with loud singing. (laughs) Y'all, there's coming a day, friends. Where we're going to stand before that throne from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Some of the people that that get saved on your outreach are going to be standing next to you around that throne. We're going to be singing, worthy is the lamb for you were slain and by your blood you've redeemed us to God. But it's not just we who are singing in that context. It's God, the Father, who begins to sing over us. Like, I don't know about you guys. I, I mean, I'm like, music is so powerful. And there are voices that just kind of move you at the deepest core of who you are. Like, I mean, even just Monday, Scott leading worship. I mean, his voice is just one of those voices that kind of just go, all right, he just opens up his mouth and something like trembles on the inside of you. I mean, you know those moments in worship where you just feel like, like every part of your body is alive. Like we call it goosebumps sometimes, but it sounds so stupid. All right, but it's like I, I'm like in this place of worship. I feel the presence of God so tangibly. I don't ever want it to change. Like I feel like if this gets any better, I'm going to explode. Do you, ever, do you ever feel that? I mean, worship, it's like, oh, this is so good. I think that's just our, uh, that, that like it's our human body longing to be resurrected so we can actually touch what we were made for. Like every part of our body under the curse is going, I was made for your presence. I was made. But I think if we, if he sang over us right now, I just think our whole body would explode. Like I just think our physical body couldn't take it. I mean, if a guy like Scott can sing, just open his mouth. He's just a human being like you and me and everything in me goes, ah, this is unbelievable. What is it like when God sings over us? What's it going to be like? I mean, we will need a resurrected body just to survive it. I mean, like, you do not want to get around that throne without a resurrected body. Okay, you're going you're gonna to die. So, of course, Christianity is a singing faith because God, our founder, Jesus, is a singing God. All right, so we're made in his image. We are those people who sing. Okay, so to sing is to be like him. To sing is to be like God, number one. To sing is to obey. To sing is to obey. <laughs> so often in our culture, the word obey is not super popular. All right? We, just, we, we are a people who like to be invited into things. Like, I know that I should do that, but could you just like, could you say it in such a way that I feel invited into it? You know, and then I'll respond better. And the truth is, I think we're made that way. I think God does that. I think God invites us into partnership, and he's given us that thing in us that just really wants partnership, not just like, I don't want to just like do what I'm told every time. I really want to own it. But at the same point in time, God is God. (laughs) And God is not like this evil sort of father standing back at a distance going, I told you to obey. I I want you to do it. He's not a control freak. He is this father who has bright eyes, big smile in his face. And he's like, he, he's, the reason he says obey is because he knows the way that he made you. He's like, do you know that I made you for my presence? And when you sing, you're going to encounter me in a deeper way. I, I'm like, this is, this is an invitation, friends. Obey. Just sing. 
Just saying, I'm telling you, something happens because I made you that way. That's, that's the voice saying obey. The voice we see obeys often is like this angry guy in the corner that's mostly mad at us. It's like, I said obey. We're like, okay, okay, okay. All right, no, no, no. It's like this bright eyes, big smile, Godfather going, I made you this way. And I'm telling you, if you sing, you're going to start to encounter me at a deeper level. All told, the Bible has 1,150 references to music, 400 references to singing, 50 direct commands to sing. Commands. Now, now, here's one of the things that tells me we don't always really understand the gospel. Like, we are heavy on the do not commands of God. We're heavy on the don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. Those, we think of those as the commands of God. But the do commands of God, we often just like, we just like slide over those like they don't mean anything. Like, love me with all your heart, soul, and might. That's a command. Okay? Sing to the Lord is a command. And we need to give more attention as believers to the do commands of God than just the do not commands of God. That's what tells you that we're seeing something a little bit wrong. We're a little too focused on our behavior and not focused enough on loving God with all our heart, soul, and might and doing what he's commanded us to do, all right? The do not commands are important, but they're not more important than the do commands of God. So when the Bible says, sing to the Lord a new song, that's a command. That's a command like, don't commit adultery. There's a don't command of God, and there's a do command of God. So the command to sing, it's not like optional. It's not like, it's not like if, you, if you are, you know, Bethel music artist, sing to God. Like if you have a CD that's going, or if you have an album that's going global, I know I use the word CD. Uh, if you have an album that's going global, uh, then sing to God. That's what I say. It's, it's, this is a command for everyone. Go sing to God. <laughs> you just got to picture God the Father going, and I'm telling you, if you just open your mouth and sing, I don't care how weak it is. I don't care how little it is. I don't care what it sounds like. Just sing to me because you were made to sing. You were made to sing. Do you know, um, two, two of the people in life that I respect probably, I mean, the most, uh, two, of the, two of those people are John Piper and Mike Bickle. And both of those men, with Mike, I've heard him say it to me, just the question of like, like Mike, like how do you become that passion for Jesus guy? And he just simply said, I just take short phrases from the Bible that I see in the word and I sing them to God all day long. John Piper says the same thing. He says, I just sing phrases from the Bible all day long. And it fuels this fire on the inside of who I am. Friends, sometimes, sometimes we're like, um, we're like that guy, and his name is evading me right now, in the Bible. So I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, you're going to have to help me out. So the guy, I think he's an Assyrian army guy. Now I sound super biblically illiterate. I apologize. And thank you, Laman. Naaman. There we go. Naaman. Thank you. What's your name? I didn't even tell the story. It's like, are you reading my mind? Clearly not, because I didn't know the name. Naaman. Naaman has a servant. Naaman has a servant who is Jewish. All right? So Naaman has leprosy. So his, and he doesn't know what to do. He's this high commander in the Assyrian army. And so Naaman has this servant who is Jewish. She's a slave. 
And this Jewish slave says to him, hey, I know a prophet in Israel who can heal you. So Naaman, kind of in a like, yeah, I'll do anything to get healed, he goes with all these gifts to, uh, which one was it, Elijah or Elisha? Okay, Elijah, I'm going to count, I'm going to count, I'm going to count, you can look it up. So he goes to Elijah, okay, and the prophet, this is what the prophet says to him, he says, the prophet goes, go and dip in the Jordan River seven times and you will be healed. Okay, if I'm getting any of the facts wrong, just let me know, okay? All right, so go and dip in the river seven times and you will be healed. So Naaman goes, are you kidding me? I did not come all of this way to dip in the river. That's so foolish. I could dip in any river where I come from and they're cleaner than the Jordan. So he packs up to leave and his servant goes, it's just so simple. Like, I mean, we're here already. Why don't you just, just do, do, just do it. So he goes, all right, I'm here already. It sounds foolish. I'll do it. And so he goes and he dips in the river seven times and he's healed. Like all of his leprosy is gone. And we're, we're kind of like that sometimes with the due commands of God of sing. It's like, it's so simple. It seems so foolish at times to the world. But God goes, goes no, if you just sing, I'm telling you, something's going to happen on the inside that's going to transform you. And it seems little and it seems foolish, but it's more powerful than you know that it is. So to sing is to obey. To sing is to be like God. To sing is to obey. It's just to obey. Just do it. To sing is to pray. I love this one. John Calvin considered songs to be sung prayers. Okay, so basically what he said was like, when I sing a song of adoration, I'm praying a prayer of adoration. When I'm singing a song of thanksgiving, I'm praying a prayer of thanksgiving. When I'm singing a song of dedication, I'm praying a prayer of dedication. When I'm singing a song that is an intercession, I'm praying a prayer of intercession. So therefore, for all of us in the room who probably struggle with long hours in the place of prayer, and I'm one of those, like adding music to my prayer life is massively powerful. It's not a crutch. It's not like, uh, man, if you can't make it just in like rock pile, pray loud, no music, then all right, add music. That's kind of for the, the wimps. It's, it's kind of for like the lightweights. No, you don't know, it's, it's, it's actually so much more powerful than that. Understanding that when we sing something, we're actually praying it. Because prayer is just that, that conversation we have with God. So I can actually go, uh, I, can, I can spend an hour with believers in the place of worship. All of it is conversation with God if my heart is actually involved in the process. And I can go, I just spent an hour in prayer and it was the most enjoyable thing that I've done all day long. Like, so just count your worship time, your singing time as your prayer time. Like, don't go, there's singing and then there's prayer. In God's mind, in his heart, it's all the same reality. It's just conversation. I just want you fellowshipping with me. So if you do it with music, that's great. I actually made you that way. All right? So consider songs to be sung prayers. I just count it all together as my life of prayer. I don't go, wow, Murray, it's really hard for you to eke out 30 minutes in the morning to just have, like, go through your list. He's not looking for us to go through our list, friends. Now, a list is good. Don't get me wrong. It's good. I have a list. It's good to have a list. But he's not just going to go through your list. He's going, no, I want you in conversation with me all day long. That's what he's looking for. It's kind of like, is that chair attached over there? Can I use this for a second? Okay, great. All right, so it's kind of like if I go on a date with my wife, which I do on a regular basis, 
All right, so I go on a date with my wife, and I just, I, I'm, I think I'm being noble, and I just go, hey, hey, babe, I, uh, I just want you to know that this is so important to me. It's scheduled in my calendar every day, like, I mean, every week for us to spend this time together. So, so I want you to know how important this is to me because I schedule it in my calendar. And, and the truth is, I just need you to know this because I want to be honest, um, I don't really feel anything for you. Like, I don't really feel anything right now, but I'm committed. Like, I'm faithful. I just want you to know that I'm going to be faithful. And I'm, I'm not, I don't feel anything, but I'm, I'm going to be here. Like, how do you think she would respond to me in that context? Like, what's she thinking in that moment? Do you think she's flattered? She's like, wow, my husband is so amazing. She's not thinking that. Okay, so, so just so you know, the fact that I show up, the fact that it's in my calendar is good. All right? I, I mean, it could be worse. I could just, I could leave, okay? That's clearly, clearly way worse. But for me to come and to say, my prayer life is this, the least enjoyable part of my day is like saying to God, like, I don't really, I, like, I don't really feel anything, but I'm showing up. Here's my list. And if on our date, I just kind of give her the list of, you know, I'd, I'd like this to be different in our home. And if you could do this for me, that'd be great. And like, that'd be cool if we could do this. And, and if you could do that for me, that'd be cool. If that was all that our date, ex- that, that, that's all that happened on our date, they would not be successful. And, and my wife would not be happy. <laughs> all right. So our prayer life cannot just be those conversations, not just those lists. It's so much bigger than that. God wants the conversation that we have with him to be the most enjoyable part of our life. And I believe he gave us music to help us with that. All right. So to pray, to sing is to pray. Super helpful. All right. I don't know if you're like me. Prayer is sometimes difficult. All right. So sing your prayers. When you go into uh, the prayer room, when you're here in the place of worship, just understand that this is, this is not just, I'm not just singing now. It's like a random experience. I am, con- I am communing with God, which is prayer. Right, to sing is to believe. I'm going to pause here for a little bit because this is a big one. To sing is to believe the gospel. A lot of times people ask me, like, you've been a worship leader for a while. Like, how can we get our church to really engage in worship? You know, not just kind of standing there singing or just a little bit engaged. But I want them wholeheartedly engaged. How do you do that? And often the conversation can be about skill of the team, song selection, you know, the, the way we do certain things in the service. But I'll tell you, I mean, all of those things are good. And I like, I like a skilled worship team. I like the picking the right songs and doing all of that stuff. But at the end of the day, it's not about that. At the end of the day, worship by the body of Christ is about what we believe in our heart. It's something that's exploding on the inside and it is expressed in our place of worship. There's not a like, oh, okay, like maybe I should raise my hands or, you know, there's, it's just this like, I love you kind of thing that explodes out of who we are. The root of all singing in the church is a deep convictional belief in how good the gospel of the kingdom really is. And the truth is, as a church, often we've bought into the lie of every other religion. Whether we know it or not, the lie of every other religion is this. Do your best for God and he might have favor on you. That's the lie of every other religion. You can just put them all together. Every other religion 
every other cult. It's just like every other lie is do your best for God in, in some way, and I will might have favor on you. And that is not Christianity. But often we that that lie has been sown into the church, and so whether or no whether we know it or not, we begin to believe it. That's why Paul says things like Colossians three sixteen: Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly by singing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. Friends, you've got to know the truth to live the truth. You've got to know the truth to actually live the truth in our action. It's got to be real on the inside of who we are. Friends, the gospel is better preached when it is the fuel of our own lives. And often as believers, we're living in the place of accusation. We're living in the place of lies. We're living in the place of unbelief. And we try to preach the gospel, but it's just like we don't know how good it is ourselves. And we need that to be changed in this hour. God wants to change it. The cross is not just our eternal security system. It's our uh, it's our everyday operating system. It's what I live in, this reality of the cross and the good news of the gospel every day transforms what I see and what I believe. The, one of the places where we find the clearest presentation of the gospel is in Romans 1, 16 and 17. Turn there with me real quickly. Romans 1, 16 and 17. For I, this is what Paul says, Romans 1, 16 and 17. What is the gospel? What do I need to believe? For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, and as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Okay, so there's the phrase, the righteous shall live by faith. So what's what, what is Paul saying here? This is what Paul's saying. He's saying the righteousness that God demands from us. Okay, do you ever feel that? You're like, man, I just can't make it. Like, I just can't do all. Like, I keep getting tripped up in my sin and in my weakness. I just can't quite get it together. There's this righteous standard that I'm just not able to meet up. All right, so that, that righteousness that God demands from us, here's what Paul is telling us. God freely gives it to us. The righteousness that he demands from us, he freely gives to us. It's not something that you make happen. What makes a person a Christian? What makes a person a Christian? We become a Christian when we stop trying to be righteous on our own in order to win our salvation and receive the gift of another person's righteousness. What makes us a Christian is when I go, I cannot do this on my own. I'm so weak and broken. I need your righteousness, God. I need the cross to transfer me into another kingdom where I'm seated with you in heavenly places. Now, it's hard for us to believe that, isn't it? Uh, I mean, if you agree with me, do you agree with me? It's hard for us to believe that. It's hard for us to believe that I actually have the righteousness of God. And here's one of the tests I do to myself to see if I actually believe the gospel. And this might work for you as well. One of the things that I do is when I sin, whether it's, whether it's lust, whether it's anger, whether it's manipulation, uh, whatever it is, when I sin, okay, the, my, the question, what I will often do when I sin is I will 
kind of back away from my, um, I, I kind of put myself in uh, like a self-imposed time out. It's like this sort of ineffective parenting tool, really, that we, we think maybe this works for Christianity. So I put myself in this kind of self-imposed time out. So let's just say, for example, I, was, I spoke angry words to my children this morning. Today's uh, Tuesday, right? All right. Uh, and Thursday night, there's a gathering here, right? Thursday night in the Ohana Court, right? Okay. So today's Tuesday, and I, I sinned. So I sinned. Um, and what I do is I, I, I start to, like, put myself in a little time out. I go, God, I, I just gonna, I'm going to kind of back away a little bit. I'm really sorry for my sin. So that's the good part. But I do this. I'm sorry for my sin, and I back away from God. And maybe when I come to worship this morning here in the tent or if we're going to go to the prayer room later, whatever it is, I'm like, I'm just not quite as fiery as I was yesterday. You know, I come into worship and I'm kind of like, ah, I failed so miserably. And so I'm, I'm just kind of like, God, help me. God, help me, which is good. It's good. Like, like, I need us to be repentant. So I'm not saying repentance is not good. <clears throat> so repentance is good. But I kind of take this position of now I know that God's sort of like, I know there's separation between us. And so I'm going to kind of back away a little bit until I can, like, prove my love to God again. All right. So then Wednesday I come and, you know, now it's been 24 hours and I've, I have a better track record. And so today in worship, I'm like, my hands might be here. I'm a little more like, God, I know you love me. Like, help me. Maybe my hands are here. And by the time I get to Thursday night in the Ohana court, I'm like, man, it's been 48 hours. I have, I have 48 hours without doing that sin. And here I am, God. I love you with all my heart. I'm in the place of worship. I love you. I do that thing. And I'm like, yes, I'm fully engaged. All right? So what I've done in that context is I've put myself in a little time out. And what we don't understand is what happens when we do that is we, act, we just don't believe the gospel. We don't believe how good God really is. Because now I'm trusting in my track record to come before God. I'm trusting in my track record in the place of worship than actually his righteousness. Now, again, I'm going to say it again. It doesn't mean we don't repent. It doesn't mean we don't confess. It doesn't mean we don't turn. But there's a difference between repentance, confession, and then running into God's presence rather than running away from. Okay, so this is the primary difference between David and Saul. King David and King Saul. So King Saul, like if you read the story of King Saul and you read the story of King David, who sounds worse? <laughs> no, I'm going to go with David on this one. No, you read the story of King Saul and King David. King Saul, his big sin that turned the tide of his leadership in the nation was he made a sacrifice too early because Samuel didn't show up. Now, it was presumptuous. He was relying on his own strength. But everything in, like, the kingdom was torn from him in that moment because it was the position of his heart. All right? David, David, David like commits adultery with another woman, gets her pregnant, kills her husband, and then takes the, the woman to be his wife. That's way worse in my books. Feels like, that. okay, like, God, what were you thinking? Saul, like, couldn't you have worked with that a little bit more? 
But it really was about the position of the heart. What happened with Saul when he sinned was he backed away from God. He was thinking more about his own track record. David, not relying on his own strength, but relying fully on the mercy of God and how good the gospel is, ran into his presence. And it changed everything. It wasn't about how much David sinned or didn't sin that made him a man after God's own heart. It was his confidence in the good news of the gospel. Like God, what God really thinks and feels. And friends, that transforms what happens when I come into this room and my confidence to come before the throne of grace in the place of worship. I have to believe how good the gospel really is. Now, I want to, I want to, I want to, this is going to be our biggest point because it, it is the biggest point. So I, I want you to look at Romans 4 for a moment. Romans 4, verse 3 through 5. The reason we're going to the Bible, I tell the illustration and we go to the Bible because I really want us to see it as truth. I don't want you to go, I don't know if I really believe it's that good. I want you to see the truth in the Bible that is going to make you go, oh my gosh, I need to change the way I live because of truth. All right, so Romans 5, verse 3 through 5, I'm going to sum it up as this. For what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, okay? So there it is. Abraham believed God. He believed how good God was, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Now, to him who works, Paul says, who works? What he's saying, the whole context is, is righteousness by faith here in Romans 4. So to him who works for his righteousness, those wages are counted not as a grace but as a debt. Here's what Paul's saying. If you work, if you put yourself in time out and feel like it takes about 48 hours for you to get a track record to come boldly before the presence of God, you are working for your salvation and it actually counts against you. That's what Paul's saying. It's not optional, friends. It's not like, no, I really want the two days time out. I just feel like I need that. No, it's not optional. If you do that, it's counted against you. It's not counted for you. That's what happened to Saul. He, he was like, I'm going to try to work for this thing. And it, God counted it against him in that moment. But to him who does not work... But believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted to him for righteousness. Romans 4. It's right there in the word of God. It is the truth of the good news of the gospel that has to come alive on the inside of us. And we have to believe it at its core. If I put myself in time out and I try to gain God's approval by my track record, he's counting it against me. That just helps me. I'm like, okay, wow, you're going to count this against me. I feel like I need to like... I need, to, I need to, like, do something to get your favor back. But you're telling me that if I do that, you're going to count it against me? But you're telling me that if I run boldly into your presence right now, you're going to count it as righteousness. Okay, wow, I'm going to change the way I act right now. I'm not going to put myself in time out. Okay, the writer that the Hebrews talks about this as well in Hebrews 10 and 11. You can look at it later. But there's this, there's this uh, at the end of Hebrews 10... The writer says, we are not, of, again, it's justification by faith. He says, we are not of those who draw back. Basically, what he's saying is, we are not of those who put ourselves in time out. 
Okay, we are not of those. And then just a couple, chap- uh, couple verses later in Hebrews 11, remember it's all connected. We put those chapter things in there later. Pa- the writer did not. Okay, so Hebrews 10, bottom of Hebrews 10, it says, we are not of those who draw back. Top of Hebrews 11, it says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. So here's what you have to know. Here's what you have to know. When you put yourself in time out, it does not please God. He counts it against you. When you run into his presence in your sin, not because you're taking advantage of it, not because you're like, I can do whatever I want now. That's not it. Okay, that's so different. That's not that. But when I run into his presence and I go, I know you love me. I know you've given me your righteousness. Transform me from the inside. I run into his presence. It brings him pleasure. It brings him pleasure. I bring my sin, my weakness, my brokenness. I'm not trying to hide it from God. I'm not trying to back away. I'm not trying to come to him with a track record. I run into his presence. He fully knows. And I go, God, love me here. Like, don't love me when I'm cleaned up. Everyone else will do that. I need you to love me here in my weakest place, in the place that I keep tripping up. I need, you to, I need to know that you love me here. And you have to know that what the Bible says is, is not what we often think. So that's, that's where you go, whoa, I'm believing a lie. If I think I have to put myself in time out, I'm believing a lie because I just showed you in the Bible That if you are counting on your own good works, he's going to count it against you. And if you are counting on your own good works, he will have no pleasure in you. But if you come to him by faith, if you don't drop back, without faith, it's impossible to please me. If you don't trust fully in the work of the cross, it's impossible to please me. So I know that it's just like I go, everything with everything in me, I'm fighting what Satan has lied to us about that says I have to come with my track record. I have to put myself in time out. I fight it, and I go back to the truth, and I move myself to action even if I don't feel it. I give myself wildly in the place of worship right after I sin. Okay, now that, that, no, that doesn't mean you get to continue in your sin because, of course, the Bible says, now go and sin no more. All right? So I'm not saying that. But I am saying because until Jesus comes, you will struggle with sin or until you die. And in your sin, what will set you free from sin is actually confidence in his love. Not, not your own behavior. Not your own behavior. <laughs> that will not set you free. It only, like, gets you more into bondage at the end of the day. Look. Look at this. Look at this. Because what happens is we see this for a moment, but then the lie comes again and we go, he cannot be really that good. It cannot be that good. This cannot be true. Because we actually see the lie in our own culture. Every other religion believes it. Do your best for God and he might have favor on you. Okay, so look at Galatians 5 verse 1. Galatians 5 verse 1. Okay, somebody stand up. And read it for me. I'm going to give you the microphone. Galatians 5 verse 1. Somebody stand up and read it for me. I'm going to go here because he was first. For freedom in Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, 
I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Okay, now listen to this. Go back up to verse 1 real quickly. I want you to look at this. So often when we read this passage, when we, when we hear Paul say, stand fast in the liberty, okay, don't, and we say, don't be entangled again to the yoke of bondage, Paul says. My translation says, don't be entangled again to the yoke of bondage. And often if we don't know the context of that passage, we think, oh, yeah, I don't want to be entangled again with the yoke of the bondage of my sin. Okay, that's actually not what Paul's talking about. Here's what Paul's talking about. Paul's talking about the yoke of the bondage of the law, of salvation by works, okay? The yoke of bondage is not the yoke of bondage of your sin. He says, don't be entangled again into the yoke of bondage that says, do your best for God and he might have favor on you. That is a lie. And Paul, over and over again in the New Testament, he, he fights against this lie. That's why he says what he says here, because the church is constantly coming under this lie in this dominion that I have to do my best for God. And friends, that's not good news. Like, that is not good news. I, don't, I mean, maybe you're a better person than I am, but I, if, if it's about me and my track record, friends, that is not good news. Like, not only is that I'm not going to live in freedom, but I'm going to have a limited ability to actually share my faith like it's good news if I'm not believing it myself. And I have to believe that reality, and it transforms. I mean, I tell you what, I come into that place. I mean, that's why the Bible tells stories like the prodigal son. You know, and it paints this picture that actually seems sort of wild and a little bit reckless, and maybe not good, like, church protocol, right? So there's this, there's this father that has two sons, and one of his sons says, I want my inheritance. I want to do what I want to do. I think that if I lead my own life, it's going to be better, father, than if you lead my life. That's basically what he said. Well, everything that I often struggle with myself, okay? So, so the son says that. The father gives him his inheritance. He goes and he squanders it. He lives a life of just... Everything that his father taught him not to do, he just did. All right? Finally, he finds himself. He's got nothing left, no friends, no money. He's feeding pigs. And he comes to his senses, the Bible says, and he says, even my father's servants eat better than this. I'm going to go home. All right? So how many of you, if you're like, you know, having a one-on-one -on -one with somebody and they go, they go, hey, I just, I just want to eat better, so I'm going to repent. Like how many of you are going, wow, this is true repentance? Right? It doesn't sound like true repentance, does it? It's like, man, my father's servants really eat better than I do. I'm going to go home. So the son comes, and the father's been waiting. Right? That's the Bible tells us. The father's been waiting. I mean, for, for the son to do everything that he did, that, that the, the story tells us he did, I mean, he had to be gone a while. It wasn't a week. It wasn't a day. It was like months, maybe years. Okay, and the father, the Bible tells us, has been waiting the entire time. He's been waiting the entire time. He's just waiting. 
All right, so he sees the son coming, and the Bible tells us that he doesn't like, I mean, if I was the father in that moment, and I'd been waiting months or even years for my son to return, and he'd been so blatantly disrespectful and disobedient, full of sin, I'm telling you what, I would have, what I would have done in that moment, even though I had been waiting eagerly, longing, praying for his return, I would have kind of backed away a little bit because I wanted to know that he was really repentant. And I wouldn't want him to know in that moment that I was just like wildly waiting for him, ready to run to him when he returns. The father doesn't even wait for an explanation. He just says, kill the fatted calf, put a robe on his back, put a ring on his finger for the son that was lost is now found. He's back. All right. And in our sort of church religiosity, we go, man. I don't know that he's really repentant. Like, like, let's put him in a season of testing. And maybe we need a 12-step program. And maybe we need some counseling. And then let's do the celebration maybe a couple months later, right? That's what good religious activity sort of tells us we should do. But that's not what the story actually tells us. It tells us that, that the father runs wildly, recklessly towards him, gives him all of the, the, like, the son who was gone has now returned, and I'm going to celebrate. There's this wild love in the father's heart that is nothing like our love. Like, we can't think about our love and go, the father's love must be something like our love. I mean, in a weak way, yes, but in a broken way. And the father's love is so much bigger than ours. And if the father really was only wanting his son to be a better person, then I think he might have actually, like, gone, okay, I really need you to prove to me over the next six months that you really are repentant. I'm going to put you in a program. I'm going to help you out. Now, all of those things are good. Don't get me wrong. I don't, I don't think they're wrong. I think they're helpful. But that's not our first point of reference. Our first point of reference is the wild, reckless love of God that doesn't make any sense to us. Because what you have to understand is the father wasn't just looking for the son to be a better person. He wasn't just looking for the son to be a better person. The father was looking for the son to be a wild lover of God. That's what he was, he was like. I want love to grow in it. I actually want, a, I want love that overflows into a song. And God knows the way he made the son. And he says, I'm going to give him my wild love right now. So that something happens on the inside of his heart. Friends, God's kind of like that crazy friend person who is like awkward sometimes. Like that's sort of what the Bible tells us. Like remember over here in Genesis 1, what did God want? What did God want? Say it louder. He wanted relationship. Okay, I want to be with you. Okay, well, like we want to hear that over and over again. I want to be with you. I'm going to ask you that tomorrow and the next day. So when I ask you what did God want, I just want you to say, I want to be with you. Okay, let's do it. all do it together. Ready? What did God want? I want to be with you. Okay, that's what we got to feel. We got to feel that ache when we read the Bible. So there we are, Genesis 1. God says, I, I want to be with you in that context. And all he's ever done throughout history is say it again and again. I want to be with you. I want to be with you. He's really like that awkward friend. So let's just say, for example, tell me your name. Isaac. So let's just say I'm doing this DTS. Oh, I'm not. But I'm doing this DTS. I, I run into Isaac in the cafeteria, and I'm going, hey, Isaac, my name's Murray. And I'm like, super interested. Let, let's be friends. Where are you from? Wisconsin. Wisconsin. Cool. I, lived, I used to live in Minnesota. That's super close. We might have a similar accent. All right, so, so like I'm already connecting to Isaac, 
and uh, and I'm I'm like, man, I really want to be friends with Isaac. So, so I'm like, every time there's a meal, I'm like, let's eat together, Isaac. Like, let's talk, you know. And outside of every meal, I'm like, Isaac, hey, let's go get coffee, or hey, let's like, let's go do something. I mean, it's just like. All the time, after every class, every day. I mean, he wakes up in the morning, and there's five texts from me that go, like, hey, Isaac, let's hang out. Like, what are your plans today? And he's like, geez, who is this guy? Like, stop. And he goes to talk to some of the leaders. He's just like, this is, I, I don't know what to do with this person that just wants to be my friend all the time, okay? Just every conversation is like, I just want to know more about you. I just want to be with you. Like, tell me. Like, that's, that's the awkward nature, all right? But here's what you have to understand. Like, God is a little bit like that awkward person that all he ever wants to do is to be with you. It's like the person on Facebook that goes, like, Facebook requests. And you're like, man, I don't, Isaac goes, uh, so, I, so finally I Facebook request him because he's not answering my text. So I Facebook request him. And, I, and he goes, I was like, oh, no, that's, like, that's Murray. I'm like, I like, delete request. You know, and I do it again, friend request. And he goes, delete request, friend request. I'm like, I am, I am relentless in my pursuit of friendship with Isaac. And Isaac doesn't know what to do with it. Friends, we are not like that as human beings. Like, if, if I want to be friends with Isaac, I, like, I first want to find out if, if Isaac is like, man, I know he's from Wisconsin and I'm from Minnesota. And, and it's like, yeah, we could have some things in common. But, I, like, you know, maybe we could be friends. But I don't want to throw all my cards on the table and kind of just go, I want to be your friend. You know, or when I first met Deborah, for example, I didn't just go like, I want to marry you and live with you for the rest of my life. Like, I didn't do that, right? It would freak her out. So I'm slowly trying to, like, I'm trying to guard my heart in the moment, which is wisdom in human relationships, okay? Just know that. So I'm trying to guard my heart in the moment. I'm, like, you know, one step at a time trying to move into relationship, okay? So I'm, I'm trying to get a, like, do you like me? I mean, I kind of like you. Do you like me? Like, I like you a lot. Do you like me? Literally, in our relationship for a while, I was asking her for percentages. I was like, where am I at today on the percentage? Like, I started at 45%. We, we've been married 16 years, so just know percentages are okay. But friends, God doesn't do any of that. God has none of the fear that guards his heart. There's the perfect love in God that he doesn't guard his heart from his relentless pursuit of us. He's not like, oh my gosh, what if Isaac doesn't like me? And I run wildly toward Isaac and I knock on the door of his heart and I go, talk to me. I want to be with you. He's not guarding his heart. God is that awkward sort of person that's just not going to stop knocking because all he wants to do is be with you. He has no fear that keeps him from running towards you in your weakest place. He has no fear. Perfect love casts out every fear. And so he's not guarding his heart in his relationship with you. He's just constantly, every moment of every day, friend request, friend request. Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. I want to be with you. I want to be with you. That's what he does all day long. And friends, if that's true in my weak, sinful state, then this gospel is better than I thought it was. And it produces something on the inside of me that if I can really believe it, and if I can live in that place, it changes me. And if the church believes that, I'll tell you, when we gathered, it would be so explosive, we wouldn't know what to do. Like, it doesn't matter if it was super liturgical. You know, you go into a Catholic church, and there's this, like, massive organ and choirs and things, and they're touching this gospel of the kingdom reality, and the place explodes. It erupts with worship. It has to. And that's what I believe God's going to do in this hour. 
It's going to give a revelation of a love that has no fear. A, a love that says, no, run into me in your weakness. And he's going to produce a song. The song that comes from the end of the earth is because people are actually seeing how good the gospel really is. It's not just like the church decides that music is more important. It has nothing to do with that. It's, it's, they, they look at the gospel and they go, this is so good. I can run into him rather than away from him. And now my heart is just naturally going to explode in a song. So to sing is to believe. Just is to believe. You want worship to grow in your church or in your small group? Just start looking at how good the gospel really is and let it start bubbling up in the hearts of people. Don't try to make it happen with, with, with stuff that you do. Like make it happen with truth that moves you to an action that is explosive. So to sing is to believe. This one's closely connected. To sing is to love. To sing is to love. So when you are believing the gospel, singing gives you that thing where you just like, there's moments where it's just so good, it's overflowing on the inside of you, and you just got to sing. All right, that's, it's, it's just like there's nothing like it. There's times that you just can't say it. You've got to sing it. And the main accusation, for example, that God has in the Old Testament against his people is that these people come to me with their lips but their hearts are far from me. It's a little bit like that illustration of um, me and my wife on a date when I'm telling her, like, I don't feel anything, but I'm here. Isn't that awesome? Okay, so just so you know, now I want to say this clearly. There really are those moments where you come and you feel nothing and you make a decision to worship. It's true. But God really wants something to happen on the inside of your heart. He wants you to feel something. I remember as a worship leader, in a number of different churches, just the conversation of, you know, when you're spending longer hours in the place of worship and maybe you're just repeating that one phrase over and over again. It's super kind of more normal and common now. 10, 15, 20 years ago, it wasn't. You know, what Bethel does or what IHOP does and just that like sort of prophetic, sort of spontaneous overflow of a song wasn't real common 20 years ago. All right, so that, that idea of we're just going to sing this over and over again and see what God does was like, I mean, I had so many people come to me and go, like, this just seems like manipulation. Like, you're manipulating my emotions. And I remember trying to answer that in my, like, okay, I want to sound super theologically correct right now. So I tried to find places where I could go, like, no, this is what's happening. And, of course, I could go. Well, in the throne room, they never stop crying out, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And so if it's good enough for them, it's good enough for me. You know, like they're not being manipulative, so I'm not either. So, so, so that's true. I don't think we want to manipulate people's emotions, but I like to determine the difference between emotions and affection. And affection is that thing that I believe is like when truth is just like a fire. Like the Bible talks about the Bible or the word of God being like a fire shut up in our bones. It's like, it, it's like, it's like explosive. It's like it moves my affections. And maybe it looks emotional, but I would go, it's deeper. It's like I'm seeing how good the gospel really is, and I'm exploding on the inside. Okay? And when someone comes to me now and goes, like when you lead worship, it just kind of feels like you're manipulating my emotions. I go, yes, I absolutely am. Yes, that is my goal. Here's what I want to do. I want to move your heart to actually feel love for God. 
Like, I really do. Like, love is not, it is a decision. It is. Love is a decision. It's, it's a thing that I decide to do. But if it's only ever a decision, is it really love? That like God actually wants us to feel love. Like, when I'm, like, I get to have Ellie with me right now, which is great. I love it. But I don't always get to have one of my kids with me or I don't have to have my wife with me. I'm telling you, I'm just gone a day and I already miss them. Why? Because I feel something. Are, are my emotions being manipulated? No. I, just, I love them. Therefore, I feel something. Okay, so God's not, God, when, we, when we sing, we actually give our love to God. It's powerful. I believe that God gave us music specifically for us. One of the reasons was to like just obey that great commandment, to love him with all our heart, soul, and might. Do, I mean, do you know that he gave us music? Like music wasn't our idea. We didn't somewhere in history come up with the idea of music. It's not like God looked at David one day on the hillside and went, whoa, harps, that's cool. We should get those in heaven. No. <laughs> Worship mu music came to us from God. He gave it to us. And you have to understand this. Music is not neutral. Music is powerful and it's deeply spiritual. It's not neutral. So, and I believe what, whatever God gives us as a good gift, Satan wants to counterfeit. So he wants to take the good thing and he wants to corrupt it to woo our hearts to love the world more than we love God. Okay, so we live in this moment where there is this global worship movement on the earth, and Satan is countering this global worship movement with his own global worship movement. So music can move our hearts to love God. I mean, you know it. It's just like the music starts, you feel something. Just, just so you know, that's like, that's not an accident. He made it that way. Like, don't go like, hey, let's stop all the music because I don't want to manipulate your emotions right now. I just want this to be like real. No, music is real. God gave it to us for us to actually stir our hearts to feel affection, love. The truth overflows in us, and we sing, and we, and, and we respond to him. So to sing is to love him, like just to really overflow with, I, I feel love for God. And don't get me wrong. I'm telling you what, the checklist, the show up, the I'm here thing is important, but it has to move from the discipline of my time with God to the I can't not show up right now because I, all I want to do, all I do is think about you and I just always want to be with you. That's what he's looking for, friends. He's not just looking for you to fulfill a checklist the rest of your life. You won't survive if that's the case. I mean, it's difficult. It's difficult. So to, to sing is to, is to believe. To, to, to sing is to love. To sing is to love him with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our might. I'm telling you, I, like, so I, don't, I say this to poke you and provoke you a little bit, not to go, not to go oh, my gosh, wow, I could never do that. Uh, I, so for years now, I have, well, I'm gonna, let me back up a little bit. So when I first moved to Kansas City, I'd been a worship leader at a local church for 10 years. I'd been a Christian since I was five. You know, various degrees of, you know, love and commitment to Jesus throughout that whole process. But I remember my conversation with God was, God, if you wanted me to read your word, why didn't you make it more enjoyable? Like, I really just said that. Sometimes we just need to be honest. All right? Like, if you wanted me to read this, why didn't you make it more enjoyable? So I said, God, I need you to make your word enjoyable because I'm not, 
it's not working for me to just like force it into my schedule every day. And I'll tell you what I started to do was just, I just started to get up early and be in the word. It was a, it was, I was provoked by uh, Mike Bickle who just said like, just start reading six chapters, 10 chapters a day. It doesn't matter where you start, just start reading the Bible and don't give up until he encounters you. All right. And so I was like, I was desperate in the moment and I, I just started doing it. I didn't feel anything for at least six months. I tried to stay true to that commitment to just do it. And what happened was, over the years, I literally am in a place right now where if I'm, my schedule is such that I'm just, I'm like, like, like I just can't get to that place of the word in the morning. Because what I do is my alarm goes off between four and five pretty much every day, Monday through Friday. And it doesn't make you go, wow, that's so spiritual. No, it's actually, I'm just so desperate. It's not like you, you go, wow, you spend that much time in the Word, and you go, you must be so spiritual. No, I'm so desperate. And I moved into a place where now if I miss my time in the Word, I feel it like when I miss my wife. I feel it like when I miss my kids. Like I miss the encounter. I miss the, the transaction. I miss the conversation. And yes, so doing the checklist, putting it in your schedule, having someone hold you accountable, it's all good. Do that. I am not telling you not to do that, but do that until it becomes that thing that you cannot do without. It becomes the thing that you love so much that it starts to consume your schedule rather than like you're just trying to find a place for it. So to sing is to love. A couple more. To sing is to be strengthened. Of course, singing is an overflow of joy in our hearts, but it's also a way into joy in the midst of suffering. So singing, Laura Hackett Park sings this song. Uh, she, she sings, she, it, it, one of the phrases is, you've got to sing your way into the truth. There are just moments, really, where we've, we've been talking a lot about Singing being the overflow of something that we really believe in our hearts. There really are those moments where we don't feel anything. And I make the decision. Or I'm actually in the midst of suffering. I'm in the midst of opposition. I'm, I'm like, there's abuse happening in my life. What do I do in that moment? And there's a great example, for example, in Acts 16, 25, and 26. We see Paul and Silas, they're in prison for the gospel. They're, they're suffering. There's actually... They're being persecuted for the gospel. Don't think our prisons. Think dungeon. Think cold, wet. They're probably mostly naked, chained to the wall. They're not getting food. It's miserable. It's a horrible place. They've been whipped before they were chained. There's no possible position to sit that's comfortable. Everything hurts. And they're in that context, and what do they do? They begin to sing. They just begin to sing. The Bible tells us that Paul and Silas began to sing, and when they sang, the prison doors were shaken. The entire prison was shaken, and their chains were loosed. Friends, that's the power of our song. And I know that we are in a setting right now where we're not persecuted for the gospel. Now, that may not last forever, but even today... We can take our opposition, our pain, our suffering, our abuse. We, we all have pain in our lives. Like, let's, let's, not, let's, let's not try to pretend like we don't. 
We all have pain in our lives, and the question is, can we take that pain? Can we take the suffering? Can we take the opposition? Can we take the things that we had no control over and actually begin to turn them into our instruments of worship to God? Now, what do you mean by that? You just go like, how do you do that? I, I read this thing recently in the Voice of the Martyrs magazine, which is, which is a magazine that documents some of the suffering that's taking place in the world today. And there was this testimony that just nailed my heart in the moment. And, when they, 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 and it was basically this. They said, when we were in prison, this just happened two years ago. So this is not 20 years ago, 100 years ago. This is two years ago. He said, when we were in prison, we sang almost every day because Christ was alive in us. They put chains on our hands and our feet. They chained us to add to our grief, yet we discovered that the chains were splendid musical instruments. And when we clanged them together in a rhythm, we could sing, this is the day, cling, clang. It's an old worship song. This is the day, cling, clang, that the Lord has made, cling, clang. And I just was like, oh, God, I want to take all of the pain of every day, and I don't want to turn it into accusation towards you. I actually want to turn it into a song. I want to take all of my suffering. I, I don't want to deny that it's happening. I don't want to pretend that everything's okay. I'm going to take all of my op opposition, all of my suffering, all of the abuse, all of the pain. I want to take all of it, and I want to turn it into an instrument of worship. I'm just going to begin to sing. Because the Bible tells me that when I sing, you're going to do more than I can ask or imagine. Maybe it's not going to happen in the natural. Maybe it's not going to happen immediately. But the Bible tells me that outside of time, in the battle that goes on, when I sing, something shakes. Angels and demons are moved. Chains are released when I sing today. I don't have to wait for the day that I'm sitting in prison because of the gospel. I think that day might really come. I can do it today. I can give him my worship in the place of my pain right now. I just, I just go like, I love you. <laughs> I love you. I don't, know how to, I, don't know how to, I don't know how to navigate all of this right now. I don't know why you allow this to happen, but I love you. I just begin to lift up a simple song. And when we do, I believe everything begins to change around us. To sing is to be strengthened. To sing is to be unified. To sing is to be unified. So, our singing, and this is, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read something that I read a couple years ago in Time Magazine, specifically related to singing. And it's telling us what science is telling us about singing, the power of singing. All right, And I don't need science to tell me, to kind of like remind me or help me to believe that what God said is true is true. But it's kind of nice when all these years later, scientists begin to discover what God knew at the beginning. All right? Here's what Time Magazine says. When you sing, musical vibrations move through you, altering your physical and emotional landscape. Group singing, for those who have done it, is the most exhilarating and transformative of all. 
Okay, what we do when we gather together to worship is group singing. Okay, it's the most exhilarating and transformative of all. That's not the Bible, that's science that's saying that. It takes something incredibly intimate, a sound that begins on the inside of you and shares it with a room full of people. So it's not surprising that group singing is on the rise in America. 32.5 million adults sing in choirs today. That's almost up 10 million over the past six years. Many people think of church music when you bring up group singing, but there are over 270,000 choruses across the country, and they include gospel groups to show choirs. As the popularity of group singing grows, science has been hard at work trying to explain why it is such a calming yet energizing effect on people. What researchers are beginning to discover is that singing is like an infusion of the perfect tranquilizer, the kind that both soothes your nerves and elevates your spirits. The elation or that feeling that comes may come from an endorphins. Endorphins, it's a it's a hormone that's released when you sing, which is associated with feelings of pleasure. So this is scientific. Endorphins is a real thing. It's released in your body when you sing. Okay? Or it might be oxytocin. Oxytocin is a real drug. Like, you can actually, like, if you go to a hospital, like, oxytocin is a real drug that they administer to people. But your body naturally releases it as well. So oxytocin, another hormone, is released when you sing. This has been found to alleviate anxiety and stress. Oxytocin also enhances feeling of trust and bonding, which may explain why still more studies have found that singing lessens feelings of depression and loneliness. <laughs> so it's like there's science telling us that there's a chemical on the inside of your body or a number of them that are released that causes feeling of pleasure or it begins to make me feel more connected to those people around me, or it begins to lessen anxiety, or it begins to cause me to grow in trust for the people around me, and I go, oh, well, I guess it makes sense that the kingdom of God is a singing kingdom because there's worship that never stops. There's intercession. The singing produces this unity and moves us into a place of perfect love. God knew that when he put my body together. God created my body to release certain chemicals that produce something in me when I sing. Scientific. Science didn't come up with the idea. God did. We're just now recognizing that it takes place. Friends, singing transforms something on the inside of you. And I, I just, I just, today, I just want to say, say yes to the wisdom of the kingdom of God. And give yourself to just, just like this bursting song out of the inside of you. Whether it's like, I, I feel nothing right now, but I'm coming to be strengthened, so I'm going to begin to sing. I am wrestling with sin right now, so I'm going to take a passage, I'm going to meditate it on, I'm going I'm I'm to I'm I'm sing that little phrase all day long because I'm desperate. Just say yes to the wisdom of God that singing is going to actually produce something in you that you can't imagine. So why singing? Why a global worship movement? Why songs from the ends of the earth? Because the more we move closer and closer to the return of Jesus, I believe the more it's going to look like heaven on earth. 
I believe more and more the church is going to recognize who he is. They're going to see him clearly. They're going to know how good the gospel really is. And they're going to explode with this song on the inside. And there really are going to be songs in every tribe, tongue, and nation. And it's going to start to look on the earth as it is in heaven where worship and intercession and perfect unity and love never end. I believe that's what we're seeing. I believe we're seeing what Isaiah prophesied. And that's why you're here right now. Like, that's like that informs your life right now. It's like, whoa, thousands of years ago, a prophet prophesied that this would happen. We're beginning to see it. We're beginning to see it. We're beginning to understand the power of music. Right now, the church is singing, singing to God, singing in the nations of God like never before in history. And I go, I want to be aware. I, I want to I say yes to your plans, God. I, I want to give myself to it wholeheartedly. And today, I just, I just want to take a moment to invite us to respond to the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the gospel of the kingdom. And, and really, it's just like we are all in need of our eyes being opened up in a greater way to what God thinks and what he feels and what he's doing on the earth right now. And I just, I just, just simply today... I want us to respond. Blake, can you come and just lead us in a song? So we can't do all of this talking about singing and actually just not sing. So let's just, let's just stand together. And here's what I want you to do. I just, I just kind of want to take the last couple days. I just want you to go. I just want you to just kind of for a moment, like picture Jesus, that great Man, fully God, seated on a throne, that kingdom. I don't know what it looks like physically, but I'm, I'm positive it's real. And I'm just going to set my eyes on things above. And I'm going to give myself to the wisdom of heaven, and I'm just going to begin to sing. So here's what I want us to do just for a moment. We're going to stop to sing. And I just want us to respond just to the gospel of the kingdom. What we talked about yesterday. Okay, because what we did right now just really would seem so foolish to the world. So like, I'm sorry, what were you doing? You're just singing sort of like spontaneous songs to God? Like, why would you do that? So foolish to the world, but you don't understand that what we don't see, if, the, if we could like remove the veil of the spiritual world, we would see that our songs were powerful and executed vengeance. We're going to talk about this tomorrow. Executed vengeance. Angels and demons move when you sing. Something changes when you sing. And so we say yes to the gospel of the kingdom. We go, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give myself to that gospel of the kingdom. I'm going to follow you and your ways, and I want to see it mo as more real than I see this world. I want to see your kingdom, your ways, the wisdom of worship, the wisdom of intercession, the worship of unity. I mean, I mean the wisdom of unity, the, the wisdom of, of our perfect love. I want to see it more clearly. If you just want to say yes to the gospel of the kingdom, you want to give yourself to the ways of the kingdom, I just want you to come up just, as a response to the gospel. It's like, yeah, I, I believe the good news. I want to run into you when I sin. I don't want to run away from you when I sin. I want to be confident in love. 
I want confidence in love. I want what David had. That in my weakest place, in my most broken place, I don't run away from you. I run into you. I want to see how high and wide and deep and long is the love of Christ. I want to see it. I don't want to live this life distant from God. I want to live close. I want to live for the kingdom now. I want to live for the kingdom now. I want everything that he's given me in this age now. So God, here we are. We just say yes. I just, just this is what I like to do when I'm just responding to God. You can do whatever you want, but just something that just goes, God, I just, I, I surrender to you. I realize that a lot of times I see the kingdom of this world is more real than your kingdom, and I want to see your kingdom is more real. So God, come and open up your word to us. God, come and open up your word to us. Come and open up your kingdom to us. God, we want the good news of the gospel to be like the fire on the inside of us. We want it to be like a fire on the inside. I don't, I don't want to evangelize because it's something on my checklist to do. I want to evangelize because there is this fire on the inside of me that says, you have to know this God who is coming. The God who says, run into me in your weakness, not away from me in your sin. So God, I ask, I just pray the prayer that Paul prayed in Ephesians 3, that you would give us power in these next few days. You would give us power to know how high and wide and deep and long is the love of Christ, God. Give us power more than words. My words are weak, but we ask for the unction of the Holy Spirit to come and open up our eyes, God. Touch our hearts. Soften us. Remove the blinders. Remove the dullness of the spirit of this age, God. Even now, even tonight, God, I ask for dreams and visions in the night. Even tonight, God, I ask that you would open up your word to us. Even tomorrow, before we meet again, would you open up your word to us? It would be a fire on the inside of us. We'd be like the disciples on the road to Emmaus that said, did not our hearts burn within us? God, we ask for that reality. God, I ask for that in each heart. God, would you just come with your all-consuming, fiery love and touch us? God, even, even those in the room who are wrestling with a yes... Like there's a little yes, but there's that fight of like, man, if I really surrender everything to you, I, I'm, an, I'm nervous about my, what my life's going to look like. God, I ask, would you take that little yes, even though there's hesitancy, even though there's fear, take the little yes, and I ask that you would come with fire to their hearts, God. And you would do more than we can ask or imagine. God, we just say yes again. God, we want to live in the light of the gospel of the kingdom every day. God, help us. Help us. I ask all of these things in Jesus' name. God, help us. Amen. Amen. I don't know if the Fire and Fragrance leadership wants to come, and if there's any announcements or anything they want to do.